Well, hi, Gateway, and welcome to week two of How Not to Read the Bible. And we started this last week by just setting out the problem, which is that this book is a life-changing book, is the very word of God, but so many people, including me, have real trouble reading it. It is not always an easy book to understand. And it breaks my heart that people would walk away from the love of our God simply because they don't know how to read this Bible as we should. So that's what this series is all about. And we started with some good news last week, and that is that you can be a thinking, intelligent, rational, curious follower of Christ and 100% believe in the trustworthiness and inspiration of the Bible. But we need to learn how to read it and how not to read it. And I said this last week as well, that we are God-believing, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered Christians whose faith is formed and fortified by the Bible. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship God. We learn to put the Bible in its right place. I thank God for the Bible, but it's not the foundation of my life. Jesus is. Last week, we set out uh, five ways that we shouldn't read the Bible. Uh, we said, number one, don't read it as if it's a modern book. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to ancient societies that have very different contexts. And when you come across something that you don't understand or feels weird, you probably need to consult a good study Bible or a commentary to help you with that. Secondly, don't read it as if it's a history textbook. Obviously, there is history in the Bible, but the way ancient people wrote history is different from the way modern history writers write. Thirdly, don't read it as a science textbook. Our level of scientific understanding is such a new kid on the block, and we cannot expect the biblical writers to have our understanding. Fourthly, don't read it as a legal rule book. Now, there are rules in the Bible, but most of them were given to a certain people at a certain time, and not all of them are applicable to us now. And fifthly, I said, don't read this book as if it's just any other book. It is the most inspired book and in some contexts, it's a very dangerous book because it can change us for the better. Well, let's continue. We've got a few other things that we want to talk about this week. Number six, don't read it as if it's the only place that God speaks. Now, let's not limit the creator of the universe to the 66 books in this library. The Bible itself talks about God speaking in nature, for instance. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. God speaks in art, in music, in films, in philosophy, in science, 
in mathematics. But what this library of books does do is teach me the tone and the language of his voice. And God speaks with the language of compassion and mercy and justice and beauty and love. When we read this Bible well, we're able to discern the voice of God as he speaks in other places. Now, if you believe that this is the only place that God speaks, you'll be in trouble when trying to discern um, some ethics about something new. For instance, what does God have to say about AI? Obviously, there's nothing in the Bible, but there are principles that we can discern that can guide us. Now, I know this can be messy, but God's people have to wade into that uncertainty and mess, backed by the knowledge of his voice in Scripture, and try to listen to his truth coming from many directions. We discuss, we wrestle, we try and discern together. This is healthy. All right, number seven. Don't read it as if it cannot have any contradictions. Now, if you try to stick to this belief that the Bible has no contradictions, it will do your head in. But let me just say this up front. When it comes to things that really matter, God, creator of the universe and mankind in his image, Jesus, son of God, sent to earth to show us the kingdom, to die, to give us a way to return to him, to physically rise from death and show us that there is nothing that can get between him and his love for us, that he has appointed us as his body, the church, to announce to the world that we are loved and can find forgiveness and that he is coming again to bring heaven to earth. There are no contradictions about such things in the Bible. But I want to give you permission to be real about what you find and not feel that you have to throw out your faith because you find a small contradiction in the Bible. There is a quote by um, Walter Brueggemann, who is a very well-renowned Bible scholar. He says this, Start with the awareness that the Bible does not speak with a single voice on any topic. Inspired by God as it is, all sorts of persons have a say in the complexity of Scripture, and we are under mandate to listen as best we can to all of its voices. Now, that's a pretty meaty quote, and uh, maybe if you're in a life group, you'll get a chance to just sit with that for a minute and work out its implications. But let me give you an example of what we're talking about. Um, a question like, uh, in the Old Testament, does the Bible say that Israelite people can keep their fellow Israelites as slaves? Well, Exodus 21 says, yes, and the male slaves can choose freedom after six years, but not the females. Deuteronomy 15 says, yes, but both male and female slaves have the option of freedom. Leviticus 25 says, no way, no how. Israelites can never enslave a fellow Israelite. 
Now, these are contradictory statements. Do these contradictions make me doubt the Bible? No. The Bible, this is according to Peter Enns, he says the Bible is not a Christian owner's manual, but a story, a diverse story of God and how his people have connected with him over the centuries in changing circumstances and situations. The Bible is a library of 66 books written over 1,200 years in three different languages. The miracle is not that it doesn't have contradictions. The miracle of the Bible is that it is actually as consistent as it is, constantly telling the story of God's love for his people that culminates in the cross. That's the miracle of the Bible. All right, number eight. Don't read it without an awareness of the complexities of translation. Now, every English Bible that we read is someone's interpretation of the original language. This is not an exact science. Some versions are written by one person. For instance, the message. We call that a paraphrase. The versions that are considered more authoritative have been worked on by a committee of people. The idea being that a group of translators will do a better job than just one person. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But versions like the NIV are considered to be reliable because they've been put together by a committee. But there are still dissensions and discussions among scholars. There's a documentary coming out next year called 1946, which exposes a major controversy over the translation of some New Testament words. Look out for it. It could, it could, uh, it could rock a few people. Now, I'm not talking about major dis discrepancies, just subtle nuances. Now, I actually nerd out on some of these. I find them fascinating, not disturbing. But we have to be aware. For instance, Romans 8.28 is one of the most quoted, memorised and comforting verses that uh, a lot of us would know. And in the NIV, it sounds like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, when I read that, it makes me feel good. You know, God is working for my good. No matter what happens in my life, he is there working for my good. He'll make it happen. Now, there is discussion among scholars whether that is the best translation. Here is a translation that is given in the Good News Bible and... Um, uh, a very authoritative scholar, N.T. Wright, says this is more correct. The verse he says should read, We know that in all things God works for good with those who love him, those him, whom he has called to his purpose. Now, it's a subtle difference, but this one, we know that in all things God works for good with those. It's like I'm not sitting here waiting for God to do good for me. It's like... God's going to cause me to get up off my chair and work with him to bring good into, into this world. It's a very different understanding. It's more of an activist understanding of that verse. 
Now, it doesn't change anything about my faith because as I read the rest of scripture and listen to, to all of its voices, I actually know that both interpretations are true. Yes, God is going to work for good in my life if I'm, if I'm loving him, and, but he will also work with me or through me to help good to come to other people. Both are wonderful. But you just need to understand the complications of translation. All right, number nine. Don't read it without an awareness of your own interpretive lens. Now, I keep using the term humility. Don't ever think that you know it all, understand it all, have it all nailed down. Every time we read the Bible, we are filtering it through our own wants and needs and biases. Between the scripture and our heart lies a whole world of past experiences and past voices and past teachers and past preachers. It's impossible for anyone to come to the Bible with a neutral stance. Now, let me tell you um, something fascinating I heard just recently. And it was uh, some research that was done by, a, um, by an author. And, um, and they took the story of the prodigal son to a couple of different places in the world and asked people what they heard when they read that story. So they started in America, which was their, their normal context. And the question they asked, and they, these were um, Bible, Bible college students, the question that was asked is, why did the boy end up in the pig pen? Now, I'm assuming that most of you here know the story of the prodigal son. The story was, the question was, why did the boy end up in the pig pen? Now, in all of the Western contexts that they asked this question, the same answer came up. The answer was because um, he rejected his dad, he made bad choices, he squandered his money. That's why the boy ended up in the pig pen. And that's probably how I would answer it as well. But this researcher did the same experiment in Tanzania with a whole group of black students in a Bible college. And he asked those students again, why did the boy end up in the pig pen? And their answer overwhelmingly was this, because no one gave him anything to eat. Now that's actually there in the scripture in Luke 15. The verse says, he wished he could fill himself with the bean pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. And these Tanzanian students were saying, what sort of society sees a starving man and refuses to give him anything to eat? Can you imagine that Tanzania is a third world country? where people do literally starve in the streets. How interesting that that has affected the way they see that story. You know, even the country of our birth, the colour of our skin, our gender, our politics, gives us a unique lens through which we interpret the Bible. 
In history, the Bible's been used to support monarchies, colonialism, socialism, dictatorships, revolutions, democracy, and even slavery, which is one of the most shameful and wonderful periods in church history, when slave owners quoted scripture to keep the system going and Christian freedom fighters used scripture to fuel their conviction to have it abolished. We must be smart enough to recognize and admit our lenses and be humble enough to challenge them as we interpret the scripture. All right, number 10, don't read it alone. Yes, you do need to read it in your own private time with God in, in, and meditate on it. That's very important. But we need each other to interpret it well. This has been the way of the church for thousands of years. There is humility here once again. We need each other. And this is one of the best things about being in a life group, getting together. You know, next year I'm planning to do just a short-term group for people who want to get nerdy about the Bible. Keep your eyes and your ears open for that. You might want to join. But I want to leave you with two pictures that inspire me about the Bible. Jewish rabbis will describe the scripture as a sparkling diamond. It has so many different faces. You can pick it up, pick a diamond up and look at it and it'll just sparkle with light from so many different directions. This is the way they look at scripture. Nobody wants a diamond with only one surface. It's all of those beautiful surfaces, all those different faces, everyone precious, but we can look at it from so many different directions. The other picture is of a butterfly. Have you ever had the joy of maybe going to the Melbourne Zoo to the butterfly house and just watching those beautiful creatures just flying around? The beauty of a butterfly is destroyed if you try to pin it down. Don't try and pin down the scripture. Have the humility to know that God is constantly bringing new revelation to us. So let me finish with a blessing for you. May we as a church hold on to the time-tested wisdom that in order to know God better, we should keep reading and wrestling with the Bible. The Bible's role is to encourage the faithful to live in its pages in order to look up from those pages and by the power and love of the Holy Spirit, see Jesus. And may you read it to hear the heartbeat of the Ancient of Days, our Creator, our God, the lover of our souls, calling all of mankind, yes, even you, to turn around and walk into your destiny as beloved children of God.